2: Hey, what up? Welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. And as you know, if you've been an All Ball listener for the four and a half years we've done this, most times we talk hoops, but we've had some really interesting discussions. Justin Puente, who's a former head coach at Memphis and Virginia Tech in football, he joined us. We've had other T.J. Hesmanzada join us, talk about his life and journey. Um, This discussion is no different. Jack Easterby, kind of a mythical character, if you will in the National Football League. And he's known most for his time with the Texans. But how did a guy go from being a professional, excuse me, a college basketball player and golfer at a small school in South Carolina to being the head of the Houston Texans? Well, in this part of his journey, he goes from the early days of joining the NFL and being part of Carolina Panthers, where he had his time in South Carolina, to getting in with the Kansas City Chiefs. And from the Chiefs, he made his way to the Patriots and was part of their multiple late Super Bowl runs in Tom Brady's career. How that happened? Take a listen. Here's part two with Jack Easterby. Okay. So you're at, at South Carolina, they're building facilities. They're having success in baseball, having success in basketball with the NIT championship, having success in football with Steve Spurrier. By the way, I got to ask. Spurrier is just such a unique dude, right? Um, because there's so many different lives to Spurrier, right? There was the, the you know, he was the Heisman Trophy winner. And then he was at Duke and obviously winning national championships and and gun at Florida. And then the NFL didn't work. And then he was back in college. Um, and we, we had this thing when he was in South Carolina that we called it the Spurrier zone. Okay. Do you know what the Tyson zone is? Uh, no. The Tyson zone is, I think Bill Simmons came up with this. Okay. It's the idea that, that Mike the stories about Mike Tyson um, are so unique, outlandish, and true that if somebody told you a story about Mike Tyson, regardless of how crazy it was, you'd believe it to be true. <laughs> like, there's no story about Mike, right? That's the Tyson zone. The Spurrier zone, and he was in the Spurrier zone when he was at South Carolina. Is you get to a point in your career where you've always been glib, but you're so successful that you literally stop caring and just say what's on your mind. As you remember, he used to, like one time he said like, "Well, you used to love to play Georgia first game of the season. They always got a couple guys suspended, right?" <laughs> and it's true, but no one would ever say that. Well, Steve Spurrier could get away with it because life are in the SEC and. One national championships, Heisman Trophy legend, right? There's, 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 there was, there no need to be politically correct or say, you know, be graceful in any sort of way. Like he could literally say anything he wanted because he was in the Spurrier zone. Like, what are you gonna do? Make him retire? Fine, and go play golf. You're like, no big deal. So you, what? But, but again, you've been around. Right. Obviously, Bill Belichick and uh, brilliant football minds. And there's no one way to do it, right? There's lots of ways to do it. That's right. What was it about Spurrier? How, how did he – because I think people forget, like South Carolina, as you pointed out, they were never able to compete at the top. Couldn't get to Atlanta. He got them to Atlanta. Yeah. What was it about the culture he created, the style by which he coached that allowed him to be so successful?
0: Well, I, you know, I mentioned those uh, local recruits, right? That he was able to get between Lattimore and Gilmore and Clowney. I, th- I think one of the things that was very interesting about Steve is st- Steve had a very national presence, right? That you mentioned from being a Heisman Trophy winner himself and also, um, you know, successful coach before he had got to South Carolina. Um, but what he did really well was he didn't get into any of the you know small minutia. Um, and get distracted by any of the things, any discipline issues or anything that potentially had plagued um, South Carolina in the past, um, he kind of hovered above all those things really well. So as a, as kind of a CEO type um, and obviously he was an offensive play caller and successful genius on offense, but I felt like he brought a CEO type of feel to that program uh, which really needed it. And so um, he was really at an interesting point in his career because your point uh, about him having been in the NFL and had been successful in another SEC school, he brought all the elements of those previous existences into his South carolina um, you know leadership. So I thought he brought the you know public speaker portion, which we hadn't really had, although Lou was a good public speaker, but he was everybody hung on every word when he would go to local. Um, speaking engagements, right, or high school clinics and things like that. So he was able to engage with people. But then he also brought the the tactician um, uh, from standpoint of a highly academic offensive philosophy um, and then the brand of uh, just successful um football uh, from a long-tenured coaching tree and then also relationships with coaches and high school coaches from around the Southeast. So it wasn't one thing I wouldn't say. I would say he brought all the different things that you need to be able to bring to bring a program like that up. Um, And this is the best way to say it. And I think Monty Williams said this or somebody said this recently. is like, I think when you go to a certain program like Phoenix, for example, hasn't had maybe a ton of success recently until Monty got there, you have two options. You can call people out or you can call them up. Right. And I think Spurrier kind of called South Carolina up, like, Hey, let's go up versus just calling them out. And I think that brought out the best of, of that, that university. Is it, is it, um, when you say calling them up
2: specifically at South Carolina, um, is that, Hey, you know, we're thinking about this in way too much of an old school South Carolina way. And this is how they do it at Florida. This is why they're successful. I like, how does that, how do you call people up when they're when they're thinking ways that they've thought for a long time?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think things that you um I think how many different elements of a program, okay, or a department or a system, how many different elements of those, of those, of that entity are rethought? You know, how many different elements of that are rethought? In other words, are we mm-hmm. just going along to get along, or are we rethinking this? Do starters play special teams? You know, do we practice at night or during the day? Right? Do we practice? You know, all of these different elements. Spurrier, I love it. You rethought all. I, I, of them. Does that make sense? It 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 makes sense. I'll,
2: I'll give you an example. So uh, I've known Tony Bennett for a long time. Yes. And when Tony's team lost to UMBC. I, I, I text like, out to I, Ryan Odom, by the way. Right? And and, and Ryan, who he Ryan's done the pod yep. and an amazing guy. Yep. And, a, and an amazing coach. Yep. And those guys, those guys at Utah State, it's interesting. When when Craig Smith left and he got the job, um, I'm friends with a lot of the kids who are in the program. And they all were like, This guy's amazing. Yes. And uh, it's he's a, a unique guy, obviously. And I know your relationship with with him going back to Dave. And we actually, in that pod, he talked about growing up in Charlottesville, which is like, Holy cow. This is like neighbor. I wish I had that childhood. Anyway. Um, when Tony lost to UMBC, I, I you know, he was, I and mean, he's an incredibly gracious guy, but he, he like questioned everything. You know, am I doing this all wrong? Right? And I said, listen, Tony, I like, you're not, what you do, it works. Okay. But what happened was, you know, you lost DeAndre Hunter right before the tournament and, uh, and your style, which won in the ACC, you're going against a It's really a low major and they're so small. They got you so spread out that you hadn't really seen that type of team, that type of matchup. And you're adjusting your team. And meanwhile, you're also trying to adjust to a different style of offense and team and attack. I said, you know, kind of what you're you're saying. Is you gotta you gotta challenge yourself to to not just change, but be able to play wrong handed mm-hmm. early in the year. Yep. I said, Tony, you're you're at Virginia. You gotta build it into a national power. So what you can't get caught up in is if you lose a game in November or December, because you're still going to make the tournament. Mm -hmm. Don't chase the one seed in November and December, Mm -hmm. build your team. And he's like, well, what do you mean? I was like, well, those lineups you're using against for against UMBC. Had you ever used them? He's like, no, not once. I was like, why not? That's actually your fault. You know, Mm -hmm. I go, you got to challenge yourself to try and play a little different. Try to play a little different offensively, try and play a little different defensively, Mm -hmm. you know, Play some where you don't play any of your bigs. Play some where you play three of your bigs together. Yes. Figure out what you can do differently because there's going to come a point in every tournament run, every season, where something's going to go wrong. Some kids going to get sick, kids are going to get trouble, whatever. And, and it's not just for you in terms of coaching, but for the kids in that, oh, we've done this before. Yep. You know, we've done this yep. before. And the preparation builds the confidence. That's right. You know? That's right and uh yeah I, I i think that's calling up that's a that's a great way of of expressing it and you know just challenge yourself to, to 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 have to have a plan b to have a plan c to have a plan d and this is something that i do in whenever i've done television especially uh, i was like one of the first guys at ESPN to to do their touch screen mm-hmm. and the the technology was great but it was, it was early, and oftentimes it was a little glitchy. And many of the producers themselves didn't know how to use it, and so they couldn't ex- explain to me. So what I would do is I'd come in at 7 in the morning for a 9 o'clock sports center, mm-hmm. and we go through everything, and I would say, hey, guys, let's pretend that something goes wrong. Like, what do you mean? Like, all right, what do we do if there's a freeze here? What do we do if the wrong B-roll runs? What do we do? And we would work backwards. Mm-hmm. But again, it's the same idea of challenging yourself to – to attack all aspects of it from a different perspective so that everyone knows what to do when things go right. That's easy. You know, easy. We're up 14, nothing. We're up 21, nothing. They got, they got to adjust. Yep. But what do you do when something goes wrong? How do you prepare for that? How do you, so that you don't keep bumping up in the same Losing at the same place in the tournament, losing the same place in the, in the playoffs, sort of thing.
0: Well, one of the things that's interesting about that, you mentioned the first weekend of the NCAA tournament uh, with that particular upset that you mentioned there. I, I think one of the things that I've learned is great leaders find different associations to take those cir- circumstances and learn those lessons within the curriculum of the 12 months. So, like Don Staley at the University of South Carolina, I'll never forget this. Like early in the season when sometimes you know a high major may play a mid major or lower major for you know those those guarantee games and or whatever she would reference the 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 simulation of the first weekend of the NCA tournament she would reference that as a as a hey guys this is a template for preparing hey we're going to play a, a you know a five out team that's going to be way, you know, obviously there's going to be position with basketball and we're going to have to make sure that they're going to want to, they're going to press and they're going to want to play you, uh, you know, spread you out or do whatever. They're going to have all, all, you know, hands on deck shooting wise. And so she would reference that lesson or that curriculum as being reduplicatable for obviously March. And so I think what's interesting about great leaders, Spurrier, I would mention this, uh, uh, Ray Tanner, who was the baseball coach, obviously, yeah, became the AD.
2: Yeah, yeah, I would yeah.
0: say all of those guys. And then now, as I've transitioned out and and Scott Pioli or potentially, you know, um, Bill or Nick Casario, whoever, I, they they are able to take the lessons that will be needed in crunch time and learn them in advance with the same group of people. Right. Because a lot of times the media, they reference lessons like, oh, you know, hey, coach, you were here three years ago. And you remember when that happened? Well, the coach is saying, yeah, I remember it. But my people, <laughs> they weren't on that team or that was a different group of 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 athletes. Right. And uh, the NFL and NCAA sports now is all year to year. And so what's happening is those lessons a lot of times don't transfer from year to year. Uh, or from, you know, multiple year to multiple year. You have to learn them within the year. And so if you can create a a curriculum, right, that includes lessons within the year that, hey, in November, we're going to play this game and we're going to probably play a similar game in January uh, or maybe even potentially in March, you know, it creates a good, um, I would say, learned a lesson and then applied lesson uh, in the same calendar. Um, How'd you get to Kansas City? So Ryan Suckup, who was uh, our place kicker uh, under Coach Furrier there at South Carolina um, and was Mr. Irrelevant. So we've learned a little bit about Mr. Irrelevant being an impactful thing here with Brock Purdy uh, and what's happened recently in San Fran. But um, Ryan Suckup was our place kicker at South Carolina, and he had some traction early with uh, with Kansas City, made their team. Uh, won their kicking job and uh, was just an unbelievable human at South Carolina, was a part of our fellowship of Christian athletes group, and then was a, was kind of a leader on campus. Um, he called me uh, probably, I don't know, a little bit into his career and said, Hey, we have a team chapel and our character uh, program at Kansas city, and we've got a void of leadership in some of those different opportunities. Would you come speak to our team? Uh, And uh, we'd love to have you. And so he connected me with Scott Pioli, who was a general manager. And Scott flew me out to speak to the team. And uh, it was really cool. I had a chance to speak in the preseason. They were getting going in the season of 2011. And, uh, you know, after I got a chance to share and and kind of motivate the group, you know, Scott comes to me and says, hey, can you come back next week? And I'm like, well, you know, at that time there was no remote work. People didn't work in multiple states with multiple teams. It was really you know, you're there and you're in the submarine, so to speak, um, that goes under for the year. And so I said, sure. And so for 2011 and 2012, uh, I transitioned back and forth from Columbia to Kansas city and Scott provided uh, all of my living arrangements and, um, uh, all of our travel arrangements, and we were blessed to be a part of that great franchise, and uh, to meet the Hunts, and and to to walk through a lot of different things. But yeah, originally it was Ryan Suckup, and uh, and him connecting me with Scott.
1: Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio and within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live.
0: There's no distance too far for the perfect trip
2: So when you when you speak to a group, what, what do you, what what is your what is your presentation?
0: Well it depends on the premise obviously of the presentation and the time period and, and what you're what you're doing. But I, I think one of the-
2: So let's let, let's start with the first first time you go and you speak to, to Kansas City Chiefs. Mm-hmm. What what, what was the message?
0: Well, I think that uh, time there, if I remember right, uh, in training camp, you really want to meet time, timing of of the speech with the challenges of the group. So when you're in training camp, you're really thinking about who's going to make the team. You know, obviously, everybody's got some pressure on them for jobs at stake. Right. There's a little bit of grind element because you have longer days with, you know, those type of things, and so you want to meet the challenges of the corporate group with the initiative of the team, if you can. And so, if you can create an intersection for the group to say, "Hey, everybody's kind of going with uh, going through this," and you kind of make that a commonality for the group, and then you kind of say, "Hey, here's a way to help you navigate that," then you can both unify the group while also challenging the group. And so, uh, if I remember right, it was in Kansas City. Um, they had just come back from, uh, uh, doing their training camp offsite. And, um, we were talking about really launching the season and what would be kind of, what would be, uh, what would it would take to have a good season and how that would, uh, kind of need to unfold and, and, you know, really. Just- how old are you at the time? This is sort of this 2011, how old are you at the time? So I'm 31 at the time, I think something like that. 30. No, 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 no. I'm 20. Let's see. Uh, that would have been, um, Gosh, yeah, I'm 39 now, so that would have been yeah, 20 28. So you're, you're 28. They get back from offsite,
2: so I don't know how many they ha- how many they cut down to at the time, and um, I'm I'm interested kind of in your method, right? Because you know you have to be sort of relatable, especially when who's this guy speaking to us, right? They they told us so you can use specific instances. So what's the what's the method of 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 how you connect in the quickest way possible early on in your presentation?
0: Well, I think two ways that people connect if they're really gifted communicators, in my opinion, is number one to launch curiosity, right? Just launch it. And so if you're That's talking, a great, I love that. If you're talking to a group, it's just, you know, have you ever asked yourself, how do the hardest moments of my life in the past prepare me for the next chapter of my life or something like that. Okay. Here's a curiosity quotient activator, right? Is I'm just going to ask myself, you know, Hey, listen, how are the hardest moments of my life preparing me for the next moments of my life or. Okay. So, so wait, wait, so let me, let me ask you, let me turn on you
2: hardest at that point, 28 years old. What was the hardest moment
0: in your life? I would say probably the hardest moment of my life was, uh, at that point, University of South Carolina, when I was getting started, 22, 23 years old, um, losing my grandmother and then my grandfather uh, within a short period of time was probably the, the, ch- the toughest time of my life. I mentioned that I lived with my granddad. Uh, so kind of taking care of him at the end of his life and going through that were probably the most challenging um, times of my life. But the, the way they prepared me Yes. Was that they were both greatest generation grandparents. Right. And so you're talking about a a generation that went through the Great Depression. So they were very, very frugal people, very uh, fiscally responsible. Um, They voted on both sides of the aisle. Right. They didn't have loyalty to one partisanship. Um, And so I was really blessed by my grandparents and and their education uh, of me um, in multiple different areas. And so the hardest time was them passing, right? But the catalyst of that was them preparing me, uh, to really carry their legacy forward. Okay. So
2: you start with their curiosity. What's the, what's the other, what, what curiosity
0: quotient, what's the other element to connecting with people? We said there are two. Yeah. And I think the other element is everybody wants to dream, right? They want to see themselves in a better state. They want to see the group in a better state. They want to see themselves at the top of a mountain, right? And so you want to be able to create the opportunity for the group to dream together, and then for people to dream individually. And if that's in a spiritual context, right, there's certain things that you want to make sure you you quote and or uh, teach to make sure people see their dependency on faith or their dependency on God to get them to uh, a better place. If it's in a team context, it's a lot of times the dependency on each other or their dependency on the principles of the team in order to reach that mountain or to climb that, you know, climb up to that championship, um, that pinnacle moment. So I think you really want to ask them questions and you really want to dream. And I think a lot of times you can use comedy. You can use different things to be able to bring, you want to be obviously make fun of yourself uh, and, and try not to pick on people, you know, too much. Cause I think sometimes, you know, when you don't know the group, which in this case, I didn't know, I didn't know hardly anybody when I walked into Kansas city for the first time, um, you know, you can make fun of yourself and, you know, an unathletic, a guy who can't go to his left, who's backing people down in college basketball. Um, but <laughs> I think, you know, the big picture is, you know, the, the I would say to your original question, it's two premises, right? It's, Hey, listen, let's, let's activate our minds to be curious and, and excited. And then let's dream together. And if we do that, I think you'll leave the people, you know, inspired.
2: Where were you when the, uh, Javon Belcher, uh, suicide happened?
0: It's very interesting. So we were, um, on Saturday, that was on a Saturday, um, late in the season, um, uh, first week in December. Um, we were going to play the Carolina Panthers. And, um, you know, Saturday in the NFL is kind of a review day. There's not a ton of stuff that goes from an install perspective on Saturday. And so we had our coach's Bible study uh, on Saturday morning. And so I was in our coach's Bible study, actually, in the building upstairs. Um, And uh, Gary Gibbs, who was our linebackers coach, uh, came in the building um, and actually, you know, kind of, called me and said, you know, Hey, we need you downstairs, come downstairs as soon as possible. Um, you know, Javon has just hurt himself. And so, um, I ran down the stairs there at the facility. Um, and, um, you know, unfortunately he had taken his life in front of our facility. And so we did what we could do. Uh, there was, uh, originally signs of life on the scene. So, um, you know, obviously going to the hospital and trying to serve the best you can when you don't know the exact result, don't know the whole story, Um, But then as the day kind of progressed uh, there in Kansas City, just serving however you can to make sure the people who have great relationships with him and and or great relationships uh, with the team um, who were hurting at the time, just uh, they have the support they need. So
2: emotionally for you, you know, here you are, you just joined this group Mm -hmm. and you're really part of, I mean, the real reason you're there is, you know, Really, so this type of thing doesn't. You're you're trying to connect with the human beings, not just the football players, right? As a as a as a mode of making them closer, making them better, and making them uh, ma- making their emotions. Um, I think more kind of leveled out. So some of this had to feel very personal to you, right? Because he's he's like one of your players. Mm-hmm. Um, take me through what what's going on with you personally. In you talk about serving. So is that you're grabbing, you're walking over to groups of players and talking scripture with them? Is it simply listening? Like What what are you doing in terms of serving at this time? And how are you emotionally dealing with your your own kind of feelings of the moment?
0: Well, the first thing is I I can't, wouldn't go any further without just stopping and giving some sincere praise to the leadership of the Chiefs at the time. Um, Romeo Cornell, who was our interim head coach at the time, um, you know, did a phenomenal job of walking through, uh, with the team, just loving on people. And Romeo is a loving person anyway. So he handled that just so well. Um, Scott Pioli did a great job administering, uh, during those tough weeks, that tough, really tough day. And then the subsequent weeks of getting the resources that everybody needed. And the hunt family showed such empathy to help with, um, all of the things the Belcher family needed, uh, and, or in that case, we had another, uh, victim, um, because it was a murder suicide. Uh, so helping those families as well. Uh, so yeah, I think it's two things, Doug, I think it was collectively, you know, how does the team function? And so there were a lot of meetings where we met, you know, Scott and I met, and then Romeo and I met at, how we're going to tell the team, you know, how are we going to communicate? What words are we going to use to say empathetic, but also, uh, to keep, um, you know, the program in a decent place to continue to go through what was required because we had a game in less than, you know, 24 hours uh, from that afternoon, right? We had to play. And so um, there was kind of that team element of how do we function? And then there was just, like you said, that individual empathy of, um, so it was first just, you know, how do we get counselors from different um, people uh, that we had relationships with and service providers there in Kansas City to come to the hotel uh, where we were going to be that night um, and set up places for players to talk and uh, to share and to process um, and emotionally um, just kind of walk through uh, whatever they needed to walk through. Um, and then it was also you know, just really organic conversation with anybody and everybody around the building and then giving people their space because each person processes it differently.
2: How has that moment affected you moving forward?
0: You know, that, that moment really radically shaped um, the way that I view the construction of team and the construction of, of um, organization um, because I would say it was obviously an extreme moment. Um, nothing like that uh, really has ever happened in the NFL or happened, to my knowledge, within um, professional sports where uh, something like that on-site, you know, obviously happens. Um, So the amount of services that are needed for a team to be prepared for anything, um, the amount of uh, staff that were just all stars during that moment, but are also now needed to be able to uh, be prepared uh, for that type of event. But then also the type of people that you have uh, when you go to hire people, the type of players when you're uh, involved in picking them and or uh, uh, giving people leadership positions within the organization's Um, you just really realize it all matters. Uh, When you get to an extreme moment like that, there is no kind of compartmentalized uh, functions, right? Everything matters. Relationships with everybody matter. Um, The emotional support systems of the entire building matter. Um, Everything matters. And so it really radically shaped the, you know, I think as a leader or as an administrator, sometimes you can put more attention on certain things than others. And uh, there's a temptation, whether it's the budget or the salary cap, or um, even relationships with coaches or whoever, you can sometimes, you know, put some things as more important than others uh, on the list. And certainly we have to, you know, uh, be organized with how we use our time. But Uh, Really, everything matters, right? Speaking to people uh, in the hallway matters, you know, communicating with, um, you know, people and telling them you love them matters. Um, And then being thankful uh, for those who, you know, give so much for the games that we play. Um, Every vendor you interact with matters. It just, it all matters. And so uh, I would say it was very uh, influential to me in the rest of my career since then, um i've really just had that impressed on my heart it, it, everything matters
2: um, obviously the relationships that you built in Kansas City because Romeo Patriots guy Pioli Patriots guy and these are all kind of interwoven connectors mm-hmm. that took you is how did it how did you transition from the Kansas City year? Right, what was
0: next? Yeah, so it's funny you mentioned those two guys. I would say the other great relationship that happened there was Brian Dable was actually our offensive coordinator, which, wow, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Brian was a phenomenal coach. And, and early on, um, I could tell watching him in front of the room and just watching him lead that group, he was going to be a successful coach. And so um, uh, Brian and I had a great relationship. Um, and so I uh, actually met Coach Belichick through Brian Dable originally. Um, you know, Brian was kind enough to connect me with with Bill and and um uh kind of as we began to kind of talk that offseason. But uh I actually stayed on when they hired Andy Reid uh there in Kansas City and and stayed on for a little while, met with Andy, Doug Peterson was uh coming from uh, Philadelphia with Andy and David Cully and there were several other um, gosh I want to say um, I'm trying to remember who else was in that staff, Brad Childress there was a couple other people that were on his staff when he came to when <laughs> amazing group of yeah so let me, I wanna, well, let me ask you about,
2: about, about Coach Reed okay because and I've begun to talk about this in a radio show and I don't know how much people are going to talk about it leading up to the Super Bowl they'll obviously talk about his time in Philly and, and, you know, the departure at the end. But there's the personal aspect of it, which people have a tendency to stay away from, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he basically lost two sons. And here's a beloved figure, mm-hmm. right? Like, people who played for Andy Reid love Andy Reid. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, you have a hard time finding guys that didn't enjoy their experience. That's right. And on the other hand, you have his personal life where... He has two sons and one died from addiction. Another one obviously had, you know, had a a vehicular homicide, right? So um, when he he came to Kansas City, it was a little bit of rebuild mode, right? For him personally. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering about that aspect of it and how much, considering you guys didn't know each other well, how much he let you in.
0: Yeah, I mean, we just... When he came to Kansas City, to your point, he was reallocating everything, right? Is moving, where do we live, all that type of stuff. And I remember the assessment that he made of our, our situation uh, when I first sat down with him was one of the best meetings I've ever had. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Where's the meeting? Let me give you I this. like, like that. Let me I, give you this because no, you'll okay. love this. You'll love this. So. Um, obviously he's coming in, you know, all head coaches in the NFL, they know the entire league, right? They know the personnel, they know the schemes, they know all the different parts of the league because they're watching teams to prepare to play them. But they're also watching them for p- potential free agents and staff and all that stuff. So being a head coach in the NFL is so amazing because it, the job description is just you know, miles long. Um, but he gets there. And it was funny because we had had Matt Castle and Brady Quinn were the quarterbacks. And but we had, uh, you know, Matt gets gets hurt. Brady goes in there. And then obviously we have this traumatic event with Javon. And uh, but we had some very interesting other players on the team. So Tamba Ali. Right. And um, Jamal Charles. And um, at the time, Dustin Colquitt was a pro bowler or punter. Uh, Ryan Suckup, I mentioned, was a really good, you know, kicker. Um, Derek Johnson was a great middle linebacker. And so we had five pro pro bowlers on a team that wasn't very good, right, and turned the ball over at a historic rate offensively. Um, And there were some things that just obviously weren't well done. And we were, I think, 2-14, and so it wasn't a very good season. So Andy comes in, and we're picking first overall, right? So he comes into a situation And picking first overall. And he was so relentlessly positive about the situation that what it did was it allowed his assessment of everything to be positive and for them to turn it around quickly. So, again, when I sat down to meet with him, instead of saying, you know, listen, we didn't, you know, Or the offense isn't very good, or the defense isn't very good, or maybe you know, hey, we've got to get a quarterback, or any of those types of things. Which typically, in any sort of rebuild, you're assessing all the different deficiencies and you're saying this is not good, this is not good, this is not good. He didn't do that. He he had such a glass half full approach of wow, Jamal Charles in space, wow, that's really good. And he was so positive, and he was saying, you know, with for me on the character side, when I first met him, he was like, I've heard you've done some cool things, and you know, been able to help the organization through some some tough times. And so every single interaction began to build momentum. And so then – and I ended up leaving that offseason to go to New England. But that's why, you know, his acquisition of Alex Smith, his acquisition, you know, picking you – know, I think it was Eric Fisher first overall, you know, he just stacked on positive vibes to the entire franchise and was able to turn it really quickly. And ironically, and, and we played the Chiefs uh, – the next, uh, I think it was maybe a year or so later uh, in the divisional round um, there in New England. So when they had Alex and had had kind of rebuilt and turned it around. So uh, I would just say his glass half full approach and the way he handled himself with each interaction, it began to build from the second that he put his feet on the ground in Kansas City. He was building because he was so positive, so genuine and, and so trustworthy uh, in each assessment.
2: How did it actually happen? That you said, uh, you know, that offseason I left and I went to New England. But how does how does that actually t- take place?
0: So I was actually at the. Uh, let's see, where was I? I was in North Carolina, um, speaking at a a, spo- a coaches convention there. Um, and I'll never forget. Um, I was in a hotel and uh, went out for a walk and uh, came back. at a voice message on my phone and um, and you know, voice messages. It's a five hundred eight number and it's um, you know, hey Jack, this is Bill Belichick. Uh, just wanted to reach out to you and touch base and of course naturally and you're this way you know Doug I'm sure is you know you you think it's one of your buddies making you know pulling a trick on you know it's like all right that's not Bill Belichick calling my phone come on this guy's the greatest coach ever like he's not leaving a message and then leaving a message introducing himself like you know what I mean it's like come on this isn't this isn't really Bill so part of me was was like you know do I need to get this number checked and see if this is a spam call but Um, yeah, so I called it back and I'll never forget our first phone call was an hour and 20 minutes. I mean, it was, we, from the first second we jumped on the phone, we hit stride, uh, having conversations about people and leadership initiatives and, you know, how to grow culture and, um, how many different things were challenging, um, about the NFL and, and creating trust in the locker room and, and, you know, different things he was up against and different things I had experienced in Kansas city and South Carolina. Um, and then, you know, we obviously hit it off on different people um, that he had had in his program that I knew um, just from different you know stops. And so, um yeah, so he he reached out and had the forethought to create a role within their um, program there in New England, where essentially my job would be to connect the human element, to create uh, healthy relationships in the building, and to kind of on the backside of some of the things they had been through, create uh, that EQ uh, side of the building to create a, um, a healthy um, place for people to go and or um, conversations to have uh, in the building as they continue to to build within their program. And so we connected right off the bat and um, really enjoyed it. Bill, you know, what people see, uh, you mentioned Andy Reid and, and some of the things that have happened. You know, Andy Reed's one of the most phenomenal people. Uh, I've met my entire life. I'd say the same about Bill. I mean you know what people see and how the media interactions uh obviously or in my opinion, you know just uh, don't tell the full story of how how, how so is. so so what's so so just personality
2: wise right right because you do see some of these NFL films clips where there's a, obviously a lot more personality there. and then when he's at the the dais, you know it's uh, around the Kansas City and, and as a very matter of fact whatever. What, what's he like on that phone call? What's, what's, what's his, what's his style like? Is, 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 is is there no affect to his voice? Is he asking you questions?
0: What, what, what is he really like? So I'll tell you, and you'll love this because you love coaching trees and the understanding of different, how people grow up and stuff in these industries. Number one is you, you're, you're talking to a guy who is borderline rocket scientist. Right. So when you reference a city like for me, OK, uh, right off the bat, you know, he asked me where I was. OK. And where I was, I was at a coaching clinic um, speaking at a coaches clinic kind of in the Rock Hill area. And so right off the bat, he connect. Yeah, he connected Ben Watson. Right. So okay, he, he asked me about Ben Watson and. Um, you know, Ben Watson was kind of the high character, kind of, you know, cornerstone of his program there uh, for a while. And and obviously, Ben was a tremendous leader, is a tremendous leader, uh, you know, faith and family focused guy who just, you know, loves people and is a great leader in the NFL for, gosh, two decades, you know. So, you know, again, within five seconds of the conversation, he's connected people who he believes probably see the world the same way. I didn't have an overlap with Ben. Obviously, Ben went to Duke of Georgia, um, and Georgia, uh, and is a little was a little bit it was gone by the time you know I was uh, interacting with some of the state high schools um, and at the University of South Carolina. But um, you know that that, for example, the forethought of even bringing that up to understand we kind of come from the same world, um, or to he asked me about you know barbecue spots in 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 Kansas City, right? He's like, you know, what's your favorite barbecue spot in Kansas City? So, we've talked about Ben Watson, then we've talked about barbecue in Kansas City as kind of things that we began the conversation with and I remember having those discussions as just, you know, those are just him caring enough to ask questions about things that we could build common uh, common ground on as the- what
2: what is your what is your oh, oh, what is your answer? barbecue spots in Kansas City?
0: My favorite one is probably Jack Stack. But okay, Jack it, it. Yeah. it comes across weird, right? Because that's my name. So it's like, what's your favorite one? Jack Stack. Oh, of course. You know, so oh, of course. It's <laughs> right, right, right. So I, I wanted to probably give him the diversity that I had been to more than just one that, that, uh, you know, that I was welcome with when I walked in the door. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I remember that conversation vividly because um, I remember how much fun it was to go to different spots where every every place in Kansas City says that they have the best barbecue in the country. No question, no question. Um, so, when you arrived at the Patriots,
2: g- give me this is 2012, right? Off season of 2012. This is uh, yeah, entering the, 2013 season. Yep. Right. What is what's the state of the Patriots at that point in time?
0: Well, I mean, in 2013, I would say um, they had uh, done just a, an amazing rebrand um, of the personnel there to um, get ready for and prepare for what they felt was um, another run. Um, and I think they did an amazing job. Uh, Gronk was at you know uh, his height. They had just signed Danny Amendola. Uh, Julian Edelman had proven that he was an adequate replacement for uh, Wes Walker. Yeah. And, um, uh, they had, you know, obviously Gerard Mayo was, was playing middle linebacker and was a captain. Um, Matthew Slater, uh, who is one of the best people uh, in the entire NFL, uh, was special teams captain Devin McCourty was kind of, uh, on his rise as a, as a pro bowl, uh, defensive secondary player safety, but had played some corner, uh, earlier in his career. um, the coordinators, uh, Matt Patricia, um, Joe Judge, and um, actually it might have been Scotty O'Brien when I first got there, but Joe Judge was a was a um, uh, special teams right? special teams assistant at the time. But it was the coordinator quickly, um, and then Josh McDaniels. Um, I mean, it was a well oiled machine. There was there was uh, the program uh, that they had established. You could just feel even in the offseason when I got there. Uh, you could feel uh, was the structure uh, was just in place and they were re-upping for another special run. Um, They had lost early, I want to say, maybe to the Jets um, and then maybe to the Ravens uh, a couple of years uh, previous to that. I don't don't remember exactly. Um, So they were hungry. You could feel the group was hungry um, and ready to continue to grow. Um, and, um, you know, really was ready for another launch, another run and was well built and well-structured with so many amazing, uh, staff members. I mentioned Brian Dable, who was an addition from Kansas city staff. He went as the tight ends coach in 2013. So they were loaded with staff and players, um, and, you know, kind of geared up for, they were, you could feel it was kind of like a, uh, the whole group, you could feel like there's 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 a lot here, right? You could just feel it. It was bubbling with talent, bubbling with good energy, bubbling with good good people, um, and you could feel, uh, obviously, with Brady at the helm of all that, you could feel it was going to be successful.
2: First time you met Tom Brady, what was it?
0: Gosh, I think we were coming out of the locker room and um, it was maybe, uh, you know, after you know, in the NFL, obviously there's tons of meetings. So you're meeting offense, defense, special teams all the time and and meeting uh, individual meetings. And um, I just remember him looking me right in my eye. Tom is so great about eye contact um, when he meets people. And um, I remember him, you know, asking me my name and, and uh, him introducing himself as Tom and uh, probably wasn't uh, the most special introduction in the world but uh, I think um, I had been introduced in front of the team as, as being a part of the team now when I'd uh, come and so uh, he introduced himself uh, walking out of the locker room and there's always that moment after that probably for him he's on to the next thing but for me it was like wow you know that that that's special because uh, not just because of uh, who he was as a player but uh, because of who he was within that building, right, he was going to be an important relationship for me uh, to get to know and or to gain his trust because he controlled so many of the different initiatives that were going on um, from a player perspective.
2: What, what, what separated him? You know, obviously the parts we see are only a portion of the story. But, like, it's, it's kind of like you're, you're painting the picture a little bit of Belichick paint the picture of Brady in your observations. Wh- what allowed him to, you know, like we know he took care of his body, mm-hmm. by the way, do you know, can you help me out? How did they come to the decision where he didn't take top dollar? I think that's like the, of, of all of the, the parts to the Brady Belichick uh, marriage that made it work. Mm-hmm. The fact that here, here a guy was the most decorated. And remember at that point in time, he wasn't considered the greatest of all time. He was great, but it was before that kind of last push where he won these these last bunch of titles, right? So he was still it was still Manning and him, and then Joe Montana, right? Before like now he got ten Super Bowl, seven wins. There's really no debate over his success. But what allowed them to be successful for a long time was a lot of things, but in no small part was the fact that he didn't take top dollar. Mm-hmm. How, do you, any? How did that happen? Was that was that Belichick? Was that Don Yee? Was that them working together? Was that Brady? How's that happened?
0: Yeah. Well, let me let me go to something that a lot of people don't know that I think would be a cool, cool take and just as a an interesting part of this is because is, the answer is it takes a lot of people getting on the same page, but One of the things that's very interesting about Bill is Bill grew up in Annapolis, right? And so having seen, you know, all of the different things that go in, and I say this kind of about Popovich and Krzyzewski too, right? Because Krzyzewski grows up a little bit at West Point, Popovich uh, with the Air Force Academy. I think there's so many things they learned within those interactions that they transferred into their program building that probably... Um, if you or I were leading a program, we would have to learn an initiative that we would be able to transfer into, let's say, uh, a rule or potentially part of our program. They just knew it because they grew up in it, you know. Um, but, for example, the economy of the Patriots, Bill is an economist. I mean, Bill loves finance. And so when you're talking about managing the salary cap or potentially managing the team financially to know that, the, the players that we count on the most make the most. The players that are most productive will get rewarded. The players who are have high character and are team leaders should be the ones that make the most um, uh, and are rewarded financially with continuity and or get to stay kind of thing. He, he leads that charge because both his time at the Navy, when obviously the economy is limited and understanding how all that works, probably from a standpoint of budget restrictions and probably I would guess – his dad and, and others represent, representing, you know, different limited uh, government funding strategies and how to use budgets and all those things. He he grew up in that, right? He knew every dollar matters, right? How we how you spend uh, and how you interact, um, you know, shows your priorities and and shows obviously where you're headed from a strategy standpoint. Um, so when he at the Patriots, you know, obviously Robert is incredibly smart businessman. Bill is incredibly smart from an economy standpoint. Don Yee is one of the best agents in all the sports and or cross sports from a standpoint of business intellect uh, and also player representation. And then Brady um, is one of the uh, most astute athletes uh, on every scale. And so those guys in a room were able to, over the course of time, when Tom as a player, would his contract would come up, They were over to understand where the team was at, which is obviously a huge component, and then understand where Tom was at and find a way because they had some continuity to pay him different numbers along the way that made sense. Um, And some of the job security allowed them, I I think uh, all of them obviously having some job security, allowed them to pay him different numbers at different points and reward him uh, accordingly, um, you know, both in – Obviously, in things that were going on within the uh, cap, and 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 within you know the different things that were going on within the Patriots, uh, and within other things, uh, in in a big picture from the standpoint of partnership. So I think I think um, the business dealings of Robert, Bill, Don, and and I think you're right to point those out. Those guys were incredibly smart guys who all did what was right for the team. Uh, and Tom was obviously humble enough to take less. And um, I think when you know the team's success is going to give you a chance to stay and give you a chance to have high continuity, um, you know, and Tom is a team-first thinker. He thinks about others. He thinks about others. Um, and so, you know, got to give a lot of credit to those guys and and their academic uh, capabilities to, to pull that off for all those years.
2: What did they learn from – the Aaron Hernandez situation.
0: Yeah, I think you'd have to ask them specific lessons. I would say corporately, you know, I think Bill, you know, did a really good job of drafting players um, for the most part who were, uh, had both high ceilings athletically and had high ceilings character wise. Because if you look at the big picture uh, going all the way back to the beginning, the players that he had as the cornerstones of his program were always high character players. I mean, Teddy Bruschi, uh, just an amazing human. Um, I mean, even early in his career, um, you know, the guys that were on that first team, you know, from Kevin Falk to, or not the first teams, but the first kind of um, wave. You know, wave, wait, commercial well, uh, wave, that's yeah, right, the first three, yeah, because they they were they were they
2: were famous for being the team with the most college graduates right that was a big thing for them right and yeah character did matter right so i just i just wonder if you know during your time where this is a big portion of what you're doing at the time in helping with the the culture of what they're doing if there was if your thought was like well this is in relation to lessons they've learned like you got to have somebody managing it and evolving it and that maybe was one of the reasons that you were brought in, yeah. in a, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I would say uh, it's very interesting because, as you know, sports business has grown tremendously over the last several decades. And so I think that the job description of what it takes now to relocate from a college program, like in Aaron's case, relocating from Florida, Um, even though he was, I think, from Connecticut, relocating right from Florida, Gainesville to Foxborough, uh, you know, building a business career in addition to what he's doing uh, on the football field, you know, getting an extension, all the different things that go into that. uh, There's just way more to it. There's the job description in the building, and then there's the job description out of the building, right? And I think what Bill did a great job of is let's make sure we provide services for players um, outside the building uh, as much as we can um, to make sure that they feel supported as they go and do these other things that they have to do um, that come along with them being successful as a Patriot. And so um, I was used to that because in college, right at the University of South Carolina, there is no delineation between the superstar, football, basketball, you know, or even baseball player. They you know, there's an all encompassing life element that goes into them being successful and then preparing for their transition that there is no real delineation between in the building and out of the building. They're always a game cop. Right. And so we had a lot of times to build programs like that for our successful players at the University of South Carolina. And so I was used to, you know, trying to help in any way I could. Uh, to make sure a player has the right support system, to make sure they have the right outlook on life, to make sure they have people that are willing to tell them hard truths or potentially be that person. Uh, I was used to that. And so in New England, I was able to um, to learn from Bill and learn from the other coaches and the leaders, Matthew Slater and Nate Solder and, um, you know, Devin McCourty and other people who were, you know, just great leaders, um, was able to get the young players Uh, you know, in those guys' uh, lockers, so to speak, to have those conversations and be able to help them build the sustainable model for them to be professional. So I think what Bill probably learned and Robert, I would say, they probably just learned that, Hey, we got to continue to, you know, create a great environment, which they already had, but even better environment um, for all of these things that come with being a professional athlete. And at that time being a successful franchise, at the top of of, of all of uh, the entity of the sports world, year two they're in the Super Bowl. Okay, your second year there. Yes, yeah, So year one, year one we go to the AFC Championship game, yep. and that's um, I remember Peyton Manning. That 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 was an amazing game because um, Akib Talib got hurt early in that game. Um, and I remember, I think it was maybe Logan Ryan or or uh, one of our younger players uh, got kind of thrown in there. Um, and Demarius Thomas um, had a great game. And I remember it wasn't a, a crazy, you know, high-scoring game, but I remember Denver was in control of that game. And I would say, if I remember right, um, several of the players uh, from that game uh, would, would have, you know, go on to the next couple of years, have amazing careers in the regular season. So I would say you're about to talk about year two in the Arizona Super Bowl. But that really started, I believe, with that loss in Denver, because when we came back from that loss, Bill and Josh and Brian Flores, Matt Patricia and Joe Judge did an amazing job of taking evaluation of everything in our program and how we were going to relaunch for the 2014 season. Um, so 13 was a masterclass in, you know, putting a lot of things in place that would later for 14, 15, 16, when we went on a run, uh, you know, six straight AFC championships. Um, I think that loss in Denver, I remember we, we revisited everything right after that to make sure that we were prepared for the next several years. What do
2: you think the biggest change they made because of that game was?
0: Well, I think that you know. Um, well, I don't know if there was one change. I wouldn't be able to say there was one change. I know that you know Bill always wanted to win, win games, be able to win games different ways. And so, I think um, earlier in our conversation here, we mentioned the Rams Super Bowl where you know Josh and Brian Flores were just on full display from their academic, cognitively flexibility of being able to do a bunch of things in one game. Um, I would say the injuries and the ability to be proactive on, you know, having having keep players out there because when, you know, Gronk's not out there and um, I can't remember if maybe it was, uh, you know, our left tackle or some other players weren't out there in, in 13 when we went to Denver to play in the AFC championship game, I know they had a special attention to return to play and Bill, you know, was very vested in our medical system with our strength coach and our trainers and, there were some other things that were revisited in 2013 offseason and into 14. So I don't know if there was one thing, I would just say everything they said they did uh, that they felt cost them in 13 was revisited. And from, you know, what type of personnel groups we use to how much we practiced early in the year to, should we do walkthroughs to, should we have virtual rooms where we look at, you know, sports science and, Uh, Some of the technology that was available there to, you know, how do we eat better to, you know, all the things. Do we go to the West Coast early when we play? All those things, the 2013 offseason, we revisited them all. And Bill was so amazing to give us all projects that we were all overseeing uh, to report back to the coaching staff uh, and how we could best uh, help the team to prepare for the 2014 season. All right, that's part two. Part three,
2: we start to get into Houston and what led to him going to Houston and what led to the downfall of the Houston Texans. We've got the Deshaun Watson stuff. Of course, Bill O'Brien taking over as, as not just head coach, but GM. There's a ton to get to, and Jack has been so forth- so, so kind as to share so much of his journey with us. We're going to have to stay tuned. That's the next version of All Ball.